Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to the Living Free Show on 3CR, community radio 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. I'm Anne, and with co-hosts Bill and Gabby, I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits people-powered radio. We'd like to pay our respects to elders past and present, and to acknowledge that sovereignty over this land was never ceded. Each week on The Living Free Show, we showcase one of the many programs that assist in recovery from drug, alcohol, gambling and food addictions. Our guests share their recovery stories and highlight that shared experience saves lives. This week I'm joined uh, by phone by Tom, a member of both AA and Al-Anon family groups. Uh, most of you know about AA. It helps people recover from their addiction to alcohol. Uh, some people don't know about Al-Anon, which helps people recover from the effects of being close to someone with a problem of alcoholism. Welcome, Tom. Hi, Anne. How are you going? Good, thank you. Thank you for com- uh, not coming in, but thank you for um, phoning in today. Uh, Tom, you're a member of Alcoholics Anonymous um, and uh, more recently, I think, a member of Al-Anon. Um, can you take us back to where it all began for you? Sure, I can. Thanks, Anne. So, uh, look, I, I guess at my um, as, as I've grown up um, in the in the fellowship of AA and, as you said, more recently, Al-Anon, I've... Um, I've got a very different view now, perhaps of of my childhood and you know my my teenage years, um, etc. Um, and uh, I can see that uh, you know alcoholism um, is a family disease, uh, and and it's insidious. You know, it it, it affects people um, who don't drink. It affects the families, uh, and I, I think most certainly in my experience, it's it's intergenerational. Um, so a lot of what I'm talking about now, and is is based on. Uh, me reviewing my life and and seeing the events of my life in a different light. Mm. Um, but where I start with is I had a wonderful childhood. You know, my my mum and dad are, are, are lovely people. They're very kind, caring people. And uh, you know, me and my sister, we wanted for nothing growing up. Um, but you know, I've I knew, but I didn't understand the significance of this when I was younger. That my uh, my my mother's mother was uh, an alcoholic, along with her father as well. Mm. And um, alcoholism killed my grandmother, and she went from being, you know, a, a reasonably well-off, uh, vivacious person to dying um, alone um, in a in a single-bedroom apartment uh, with her, her life a smoking ruins and her, her health very ill. Mm. And uh, I. Certainly for many years of my life, I would have uh, thought that that had no impact on me directly at all. Um, but I can see that my, my poor mother and uh, other members of her family uh, grew up in an alcoholic uh, family life uh, when they were younger. And uh, that led to certain behavioural patterns for my mother, um, which translated into the way that um, I was raised. And, uh, you know, no, so much of alcoholism... Um, and the people who are affected by alcoholism, uh, in their heart, you know, being an alcoholic myself, I know that nearly 100% of the time people are well-intentioned and mm. trying to do the right thing, not trying to hurt people. Um, and, uh, you know, it would mortify uh, most alcoholics to, to learn of the extent of the impact that we have 
on other people. And that's certainly the case for my mother. My mother didn't drink really at all. She was, uh, I think, as a result of what happened with her mother, very anti-alcohol. And there was really no drinking in my family at all when I grew up. But it was more the behavioural mm. things which um, uh, I, I certainly come, came to see affected me later in life. For example, um, I, I've heard alcoholism said to me it's a disease of relationships. And how that perhaps translated in my family was a difficulty in expressing emotions. Mm. Um, love was there and I felt loved, uh, but how love was communicated uh, was not how I now communicate love with my own family. Uh, there was, you know, things like the silent treatment where instead of expressing disapproval with someone, how someone's behaving, it, you know, the, the walls go up and there's no communication mm. for uh, a young child. Um, that leads to difficulty in knowing how to move around uh, in the world. Um, so, look, I, my life was, you know, I had no complaints, really, from when I was a, a boy. It was a, a wonderful life. Um, I, I recall being very happy. And uh, I, uh, one thing that my mum drummed, in, drummed into my head, which is interesting, she, she said to me that um, anything that I wanted to stop, I could stop on willpower alone. I, uh. I really clearly remember her saying that. Mm. And... Uh, whether it was uh, you know, schoolwork, whether it was eating, exercise, or whatever, you know, you could stop on willpower. And uh, for alcoholism is the complete opposite mm. of that. Now I've come to see, yeah, you know, if you're an alcoholic, you you have no power to to stop. Um, uh, one of the the aspects of growing up in an alcohol, uh, well, a family affected by alcoholism, was uh, you know, people pleasing as well, a, a very strong desire to, to please my mum uh, and shield her from negative emotions and negative feelings. So I'd always tell my mum about the good stuff that was going on and I never wanted to mm. share the bad stuff. Uh, and I, I didn't pick up alcohol or anything until uh, I was about 17 years old, notwithstanding that friends at school were drinking. I remember going to parties and channelling my mum's anti-drinking ideas uh, at that <laughs> point. And then... Um, you know, I, I, I tried a drink one day and it, it changed my world. Um, I think I, I was always a very shy boy, um, never really knew how to, to talk to girls easily. Um, I matured late and uh, my, my drinking certainly put off my maturing for many, many years. Mm. And um, when I, from the moment I, I drank, I loved it. Uh, it really it made me fit in um, or it allowed me to fit in. It, it took away my feelings of difference, um, whereas I might walk into a, a group of guys at school and not necessarily feel a part of the group, um, you'd have a couple of drinks and you'd feel a part of the group. Um, I could talk to girls a lot easier, but, you know, really relaxed my, my walls. Mm. And um, certainly at that stage of growing up, uh, the job that I got straight out of school, I, I got a job in a pub and a nightclub and uh, alcohol was everywhere. Um, everywhere I looked, there were people drinking, and I never really saw anything wrong with what I was doing. Um, mm. But again, with the benefit of hindsight, and I can see that the things that set me apart from my friends were that um, I would drink at every opportunity. Um, the, the drinking was really the pro my primary motivation and my primary desire in most of my activities. You know, if we were mm. going out somewhere, how do, how do I get to the alcohol quickly? Mm. Um, if I need to, if, if I could drink, it was I, I would always drink to always drink to excess. Um, 
always drinking. Uh, sorry drunk. to interrupt, Tom. Uh, what? How soon after you started drinking did that constant desire for alcohol start? Straight away. Yeah, mm. it was. Well, the, the constant desire for the the, the feeling of it. Um, mm. So uh, it started off with me and a mate in a park um, drinking port wine out of a cask. Mm. And it's that's it was filthy stuff, but it was the effect. Mm. of it and which was the the thing that um set it all apart for me mm-hmm. and um so you know i ended up going to university and um back then at that stage of human existence um there was a lot of university endorsed drinking you know stuff which would probably blow people's minds mm. um today there was a whole week dedicated to getting drunk um endorsed by the uni i remember uh, that and, <laughs> yeah uh, look it was it was fun, but it, it very it normalised excessive drinking because the whole point of some of those events that they had, had were uh, to get drunk and to, to drink to excess. So, mm. um, and it, at some point, you know, it's always the way that alcohol um, delves into, uh, takes you to other substance uh, substances as well, and um, you know they all are just faces of the same coin to me, uh, different faces of the same coin, alcohol and other substances, and. Mm. Um, for, for many, many years, uh, so for all throughout my 20s, um, alcohol and other substances were, were, were present and I never really saw anything wrong with it. Um, I had, as I said, I matured very late. I had no perspective on the way that my behaviour or my drinking was impacting other people. Um, I moved out, but, you know, managed to get a place and I was living by myself and my favourite thing to do to, after work was to come home, uh, get a six-pack of beer, a bottle of wine, and some takeaway, and just get drunk and mm. have dinner. And I just, that, to me, was a great way to spend time, and I, I saw nothing wrong with that. And yet you were functioning um, You were functioning well at work? Yes, you know, yeah, uh, very much so. Yep. Yeah, very much so. And so at one point, you know, my boss said to me, jokingly, but only partly jokingly, that uh, you seem to function better when you've been drinking. Mm. Um, and because I'd go out on a Friday uh, with a couple of friends, have a big lunch, come back, and uh, I was always very jovial. I was never an angry drunk or anything mm. like that. Um, and uh, there was a lot of success, you know, material success, I guess. And so I managed to complete university, get into the workforce, uh, to the point that I was able to open my own my own business. Uh, and um, I did, you know, at the time, put a lot of the secret of my success down to my my drinking and other substance taking and my ability just to, to be an easygoing, lovable kind of guy. Mm-hmm. But, um, I think the reality uh, was very different. Um, I, you know, I certainly was hurting a lot of people through that time, just particularly in relationships, not being present, you know, being single-mindedly focused on, on alcohol and other substances. And, um, you know, in my late, late 20s, um, you know, a woman I was seeing at the time who was just mystified as to my inability to stop. I just kept on promising her that I'd stop and I'd never stop. She she said to me once, do I just need to accept that you're going to drink and, and take other substances until you die? And I had no good answer for her back then. I, I had to I just concede that, yes, there was this was going to be my life. Um, and so it, uh, it, you know, that late 20s time, I knew that something was wrong. Um, mm. And I'd heard the term alcoholic, I'd heard the term addict, and I never would have ever considered applying it to myself. You know, a, an alcoholic was an old guy sitting in a park with a wine bottle, and that, that was not me. You know, I, I chucked on a suit and I went to work and 
I helped people. Um, and so I, I really found it very difficult to correlate, uh, you know, alcoholism with, with what I was suffering, which was a, a you know, a real spiritual problem. I, I didn't, mm. um, by the end of it, I, I really didn't want to be around. I couldn't stop drinking. Uh, I felt very alone. Um, I'd lost a lot of relationships in my life and, uh, no, I, I was bleak. I, I didn't want to kill myself, but I certainly didn't want to keep living. Mm. Um, and, you know, I kind of ticked over uh, about the age of 30, 31, and that was my life um, at that point. You, you say you, you tipped over. What is that? You, you tipped over from, um, from, from it working for you to it starting to spiritually destroy you. Is that what you're saying? Uh, yeah, it ceased being a, a social activity and started being a, a, a necessity. Yeah. And... Um, I've heard it said, you know, we, we live to drink and drink to live, and that was my, my life. And I was going to work to make the money to buy uh, the alcohol and other things to keep me going, mm. um, and just on a, a merry-go-round that never, ever stops. Mm. Just before we go to a break, Tom, can you just take us to the point where you decided to do something about it? Sure. So it was... I, I don't know, I don't have a memory of um, how I found out about rehab um, and I remember making a decision to go into rehab um, but I think I was going in there for, for no purpose other than to get a break for myself and uh-huh. to to be taught how to drink properly and like other people. I thought, you know, remember my mum said if you could stop anything on willpower. I, I think I was going in there to be taught how to apply my willpower properly uh-huh. uh, and to be, able to, to be able to drink responsibly and like other people. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay, look, yeah. that's great. We'll, we'll leave it there. We'll play a song now. Um, we'll take a little break and play a song, Sing About Life by Titus. Sing about life. Sing about possibilities. You know you may be right You and me will both be free Talk about life Is anybody listening To the cry Of one child Maybe time will tell For you and I So let's wait and see So we try to do it right So you don't responsibility You know you may be right You and me will both be free You and me will both be free You're listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned to hear the rest of your 3CR podcast. 
get your copy of 3CR's magnificent book. It's a stunning history of the people, programs and issues at the station since 1976. On sale now for the amazing price of just $20. Pick one up at the station or jump online and place your order. Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR. On sale now for $20. This is Living Free Show on 3CR 855 kilohertz on your AM radio dial and 3CR on digital radio. If you would like to listen to one of our many podcasts, then you can find us on your preferred podcast platform or just Google 3CR Living Free and check out our website. You can also contact us via phone, email or Twitter. I'm talking today with Tom, a member of both Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon Family Groups. So he's giving us a great insight into what it's like to have a problem uh, of alcoholism and also an insight into the impact of uh, that person's addiction on the people around them. So, Tom, uh, you told us before you were um, realizing that you were becoming um, spiritually ill um, from yes. this and it was no longer working for you. What happened next? Sure. And look, just a, a couple of final points we said I'm talking, and I've, I've come back to memory. You kind of shut some of this stuff out, but um, I. Before I ended up in rehab, I was, I think, on the, the first steps towards uh, what you might call voluntarily, voluntary homelessness. I, mm. I I didn't want to go back to my parents. I was just keeping this life hidden from them. Um, I uh, had a relationship that was falling apart, and um, I didn't want to go back there. And yeah, there was really no, in my mind, no friendly place to turn and it was starting to have some nights sleeping rough in the car. Mm. Uh, and I really, you know, suspect that had I not found a different pathway, um, I could see where the future was going to lead me, which was uh, losing, losing my job, um, losing everything. And, you know, I guess at some point you lose your family. And um, I can really see that, that trajectory which leads you into... Um, you know, the, the last bottom rungs of, of the ladder, you know, where you're, you're homeless with very little support. How, how were your parents? You, you talk about your parents as loving, caring mm. people. Were they aware of the predicament that you no, were in? Not, not at all. Not at all. You know, so this uh, this issue of people-pleasing and never wanting to disappoint them uh, meant I lived a, a double life. Mm. So there was, whenever I'd speak to them, life was rosy, things were happy. They, they saw, and most people saw, the veneer. Um, but you know, behind that person was this uh, person who was dying. Um, mm. So unhealthy. Um, I, I think I certainly looked terrible. Um, I smoked heavily. I was drinking every day, uh, amongst other things. Not eating well. No exercise. And um, uh, you know, a, a pitiful, a pitiful person, and uh, feeling like a real pretender, um, getting up around the world and pretending to be something that I wasn't. Mm. Um, so I, I made the decision to go to rehab, thinking that they were going to teach me how to, to manage all of this stuff properly. And it was a it was a real shock to go into rehab and to be told that um, the, the the rehabilitation plan for alcoholics and, and addicts is a program of complete abstinence from alcohol and, and mm. any other substances. And um, not knowing anything about recovery at that time, and that was quite shocking to me. I I was not ready to hear that message at that time, mm. and. Uh, I the thought of never having another drink or anything else, um, I I found that overwhelming. Um, the it's it, it frequently said it's 
uh, a day at a time program and, and we don't drink and take other substances just for today. Uh, but I didn't get that. Um, I, I heard it uh, through my ears, but I didn't understand that concept in my mind. Mm. Um, I went into a, a rehab that should have gone for 28 days, and after 21 days, in, in my mind, I was fixed. Um, you know, I've been clean, I've been sober for about three weeks, and uh, I felt good. You know, I felt that I had the problem licked. Yep. Um, I got introduced to AA, and uh, I was attending meetings, and it was said to me at the time, go, go to uh, 90 meetings in 90 days and uh, go and get yourself a sponsor and start the steps. And uh, against much resistance from the rehab, um, I felt that my responsibilities outside the rehab were so important that, uh, and I was so healthy and, you know, in reality deluded that I could go back out into the world. And uh, so I checked myself out um, and marched out of rehab, a new, a new man in my mind, you know, a, a yeah, guy yeah. who's got, got the problem under control. And um, I, I went to meetings uh, and I got myself a sponsor. And I, amazingly, you know, I started some step work. I was actually doing what the program suggested. Mm. Um with the benefit of hindsight, though, um, and I, I can safely say that, um, uh, I, you know, I've taken a number of people through the program now myself, and generally there are people fall into two buckets. There are people who are ready for recovery and people who aren't, and I wasn't ready. You know, mm. I was in pain, but um, I was still very, uh, very egocentric. Um, I wasn't ready to take direction. I thought I, thought I knew what I needed to do to keep myself well, keep myself healthy, and uh, I was unteachable. Uh, I, I'd sit with a sponsor and he would talk to me about the program and I'd say, yes, 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 I get it, I get it. And I probably could have stood up, stood up in front of a lecture hall at that time mm. and given you a lecture about what alcoholism is and what alcoholic recovery is, but I had no, no ability to apply it to my own life. And um, after about 60 days of, of being clean and sober, I walked back into an old environment and I picked up a drink because uh, it felt like a good idea at the time. In and, that uh, moment. Yeah, in that moment, it, it, seemed, um, it seemed like a good idea. Uh, and I had no, what, they, what we say in the program is, I had no defence uh, against the first drink. You know, when the circumstance was there, if it was put in front of me, I was always going to drink it. And that started a, um, a, a relapse that went on for probably another... Two, uh, two to three years, and it was painful, but it was entirely necessary in, in my case. Um, I needed to go through that relapse. Um, I needed to get into an awful lot more pain, um, and I needed to start to lose things um, around me uh, in order for me to get to become ready, actually, to hear the message of recovery and to be willing to actually change my own life. And uh, I found it extremely difficult to get well and to run a business at that time and I, I crawled into a meeting of AA one, one evening and I, I got asked to share and I, I, I was sitting up the front of Broken Man and I said, look, I don't know how to, I don't know how to get well and keep my business. Um, and a man came up to me at that meeting and said he'd been down that road before and he'd had to give up his business to get well. And mm. uh, I, didn't, I didn't want to hear that when he told that to me. Um, but a year later, I was ready to give it all up and to to crawl back into um, into rehab. And so uh, about three years after that first rehab, I, I went back to rehab a second time, and this time I was ready for it. I managed to get my life um, 
in a place where I could let go of those responsibilities and focus on myself. Mm. And I walked back into rehab this time knowing what was going to happen, um, willing to do some work. Oh, the, other, the other interesting point about this, Anne, is that um, when I went into rehab, I, I got a period of sobriety. And then during the relapse, there came a time when I couldn't even get one day up again. Mm. And I'd keep crawling into meetings and sitting at the back of the meeting, not wanting to talk to anyone because I felt so filled with shame. And uh, I I was baffled as to why I couldn't even get a day sober. And uh, I had started to convince myself that I was a guy who was never going to get the program. But just for some reason, I was different and it was never going to work for me. Mm. And what helped me is I heard other alcoholics who had said the same thing, that they, they thought they were that person that would never, ever get well. Uh, but they kept on coming back to AA and eventually they got it. And mm. um, I'm, for, in my case, I needed a rehab to get some clean time up. So I needed some space between the alcohol uh, through, a, through a hospital. And I stayed for the 30 days this time. And uh, I came out and I started going to two meetings a day and I didn't work. And I, I focused on my, my recovery and I put it before everything else. Mm. Um, the man who became uh, the, the man who told me that he needed to lose his business to get well, I, he became my sponsor, and uh, he would always drum into me. He'd, he'd uh, say that anything that you put before your recovery, you'll lose. If you put your family ahead mm. of recovery, you'll, you'll you'll end up losing your family. And um, you know, there's obviously a lot more to this story than I've got to tell in the time. And, yeah, but, yeah. You know, in that in that time, I had um, I had found another relationship. Um, you know, with a uh, with a, a woman who was also in recovery as well. Uh, and um, she went and did Al-Anon through that time to deal with me. Mm-hmm. And, um, the thing that was a, a primary driver for me going into rehab that second time was um, her finally setting a boundary with me, saying that if I wasn't going to go and do recovery, she was going to leave. And uh, for the for the couple of years before that, she was propping me up and enabling me and stopping me from feeling the consequences of my drinking. Mm. And um, so, you know, both she and I learned some very valuable lessons mm. through that time. Uh, and it was instrumental in me um, making, being able to make that decision to go to go to rehab. If she hadn't set that boundary with me, I reckon I could have you know, kept going for another couple of years. That's a great insight you've got there into both sides of the, uh, both part, both programs. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Um, and look, you know, she and I have have worked with families um, since, and you know, it's, it's very hard for families to to hear that sometimes that cutting the alcoholic loose um, is might be what's necessary to get them well. Mm. Um, uh, and you know, having children myself, I can certainly see that that's one of the hardest things mm-hmm. decisions parents can possibly contemplate. Um, that letting your letting your child go out into the world and perhaps get very hurt. Yeah. Um, in order to get well seems highly counterintuitive. Totally. And, and what about your own parents at this point? By this stage, are you getting honest with them? Uh, I had to. Um, the, okay, so the first first time I went into uh, uh, rehab, I, I told them that I was going to a, uh, a meditation retreat. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> and when I came out, I, I told them a very sanitised version of what my life was like. Yeah. Um, the second time uh, when I went in, um, it was a very hard thing for me to sit there and look at the disappointment on my, my parents' face when I 
told them the reality of what it was like, but God, it was a cleansing moment. I, you know, I didn't need to hide my life um, anymore. It was, a, it was an act of freedom for me to be able to finally say, Mum and Dad, this is who I am. Yeah. Um, this is my life. Uh, and, you know, my mother was always very sad that she felt that for some reason, if she had said the right combination of words yeah. to me when yeah. she was younger, she might have stopped it. But mm-hmm. um, I know in, in my heart of hearts that the trajectory of my life was always going to be the tra- trajectory of my life. Oh, and she was no match for that, that feeling of um, comfort in the world that that first drink gave you back in the, the beginning. Very true. Yeah, very true. Um, and uh, so, yeah, look, the... Um, Following that, you know, I'll come shortly and to the, you know, what, what recovery has done for me now. But um, that second rehab, I was certainly uh, ready, willing and able. And I, and I was teachable um, and wanting to be taught. Uh, and I really threw myself into the program, knowing that the program had worked in other people and I wanted, I wanted what they had. Um, the program says it will give you a life beyond your wildest imagination. And I wanted that. Uh, I finally got the Just For Today program, um, whereas the thought of not having a, a drink or other substances for the rest of my life was too much. Mm. I realised that I only just need to get until I close my eyes tonight and I've done my job. We're going to leave it right there, Tom. That's a, a, a good place to have another song. And when we come back, uh, you can tell us where your life is now. No worries. Cool. Uh, this is Renee Gaya singing... Uh, what is the name of this song? Um, we'll just put this song on and then we'll tell you what it's called afterwards. To the one I love. Just before dawn Each night before you go to sleep My baby Whisper a prayer for me, my darling And tell all the stars above This dedicated to the one I love Will never be exactly what you want it to be. I should be satisfied knowing that you love me. There's one thing I want you to do, especially for me. And it's one thing everybody knows. Each night before you go to sleep, my baby. Darling, and tell all the stars above this dedicated to the one I love. Oh, yeah. 
سلام به همه گی This is Jahan Khonlu from Salam Radio Tune in 4 to 6 p.m. every Sunday on 3CR For a wide selection of modern music from the greater Middle East and beyond We feature guests both locally and internationally based To help bring new sounds to you For more information, please follow our Instagram At Salam Radio Show So tune on in summer, tune into 3CR's Disability Day broadcast, Rest is Survival. 12 hours of programs by people with disabilities. Conversations about rest as a necessity for survival, the ways disabled people are habitually denied both rest and income, reflections on disabled rest and joy, disabled Indigenous anti-capitalist features, and much more. All the audio is available to listen back at your leisure at 3cr.org.au forward slash Disability Day 2022 or find the podcast by searching 3CR's Radical Radio on your favourite podcast app. So, Tom, how's life for you now? It's uh, the, the, the programs of AA and Al-Anon, they actually make um, a number of promises for you, which, you know, it's quite incredible to think that um, a 12-step fellowship makes promises um, and those promises might come true. And uh, but, but it's certainly been my experience. Um, and some of the key promises which have come true for me are this uh, this return of this sense of ease and comfort in my life um, without the need for um, uh, alcohol or any other substance. Mm. Um, a loss of um, fear of money, um, a loss of um, a fear of relationships, uh, an instinctive um, ability to understand, to know what to do in certain circumstances. These are the promises that these fellowships make and they've um, certainly come true for me. Um, and I think what's useful is to just remember how I got there. Um, and so when I came out of rehab the second time, I knew that I needed to put recovery front and centre of my life and that... Um, that mantra which I said earlier uh, was very true for me, which is that if I put anything else in front of my recovery, I'd end up losing it in the in the longer term. And that can be hard, I think, for families to understand that mm. uh, the sick person does need to prioritise their recovery ahead of work, ahead of children, ahead of other responsibilities. And it can be very difficult in certain circumstances for people to do that. Um, I was extremely lucky in that my, my partner um, was able to and willing to um, support me for that first six months um, out of rehab and to give me the freedom to, to go and do uh, two to three meetings a day mm. and to really focus on recovery. And I, I got straight into the, the steps. Um, I'd meet my sponsor uh, one to two times a week uh, and I was very diligent. You know, I really um, I had a, uh, both an academic and a spiritual interest in understanding what the steps were and... Um, how they worked for me. Um, I think I probably overthought them um, <laughs> in hindsight. Uh, that there's no great miracle or you know, uh, or magic that underlies the steps. They are um, simply a pathway um, to open the gateway, I think, for alcoholics and addicts and people affected by alcoholism. Um, Recognise our powerlessness in our own lives over so many things, um, I don't know whether we, we grow up being taught that perhaps we do have power over things, but certainly I think when I was a child, um, I probably was made to believe that 
other people's emotional reactions and emotional responses to me were my responsibility. Yep. Um, in that if someone was having a bad mood as a result of me, I needed to change all the time. Mm-hmm. And that can turn you into a bit of a chameleon-like character where you uh, are adapt- you're fitting your response to how another person is. When it, I don't think it should be like that. You know, I, if, uh, if you're a mature person who's got you know, integrity and you know what you stand for, you, know, you can be the same person in a variety of different circumstances. Mm. And so um, I, uh, I, I went into um, recovery agnostic and atheist and very closed to a concept of there being anything in the universe outside myself. And uh, I very quickly became willing to open my mind to the fact that there might be a power greater than myself. And in the early days, that power was simply the rooms of AA uh, and the program itself. And um, uh, I became very teachable. I was willing, if my sponsor gave me a suggestion on something that I should do differently, uh, I would do it as opposed to just paying lip service to it. Um, And... As a result of doing that work and doing work so, so intensely, and uh, after about uh, six to eight months, um, I, I really I felt um, so different in my life. Um, I, you know, I was happy. I was largely um, moving around the world with with a very um, limited range of emotions. You know, mm. I, I would still get fearful. I'd still get scared, but it was all manageable. Um, I was able to step back into the workforce uh, where I thought that perhaps doors had closed to me. Um, those doors reopened uh, back into the workforce. And um, I, uh, I was able to settle down into what I would call a, a life in recovery. And um, I think for, for alcoholics, addicts and the families affected by it, uh, living a life where life and recovery become blended in the same thing where life is recovery that's been essential for me um i I, 10 10 to 12 years ago the thought of doing six or seven meetings of aa a week would have seemed ridiculous Mm -hmm. who's got time to do that um now i would love to be able to get to six to seven (laughs) meetings a week you know i i get a chance to go to maybe two to three meetings a week just with how busy life is and I, and I love those meetings I love the fellowship I love um, I love hearing the stories of other people recovering and I love also helping people mm. recover um, uh, after a, uh, a number of years in recovery um, it became apparent that being in an alcoholic relationship where both both people are alcoholics um, there were some you know, very there were some behavioral patterns between us which were very set mm. in their ways. Um, and um, a few years ago, uh, that became quite painful, and uh, I needed some relief. And someone had suggested that perhaps I go and do Al-Anon, and uh, so I walked into to the rooms of Al-Anon, um, knowing that it had a lot of crossover with AA, but not really understanding what um, Al-Anon, uh, how it could help me, but no, knowing that I needed to be there. And um, I like to think that. Al-Anon has filled in the other 50% of my life in recovery because, mm. uh, yes, I'm an alcoholic, but I've grown up, as I see it now, in an alcoholic family from my grandparents' alcoholism um, through into my current relationship uh, where 
both me and my wife can affect each other with with our alcoholism. Mm. And uh, I've, I think I've grown up in Al-Anon now. It's taught me tools which um, I never was never taught. You know, concepts uh, such as letting go, uh, not attaching to people. Um, in fact, detaching with love, being able to let people exist in the world, uh, have their own emotional response, and I don't get caught up in it. Wow, no one ever taught me how to do that mm. when I was a, a child. Um, one of the, the uh, there are a lot of catchphrases in um, the, the fellowships, uh, and I think the catchphrases are important because you know alcoholics aren't necessarily as bright as they think they are. <laughs> and uh, a, a catchphrase and a slogan gives you the program in a, in a short, easily remembered. Yeah. Um, slogan and uh, something I've I've learnt in Al-Anon is that you know if if I'm in doubt as to what to do, do nothing, and wow that's that saved me so many times from getting caught up in in arguments over over silly things, um, uh, and it really has allowed me to live a much more peaceful life. Mm. Um, so. I've certainly got to the stage in my, my life, and where um, Al-Anon and AA are an essential part of my existence. I love it. I do it willingly. Um, a big part of the program is helping other people recover, uh, and it's been a privilege and a, a pleasure to have very, very sick people, you know, people who was, were as sick as I were was, um, come and ask for help, uh, and you can sit down and take them through the steps and you can see a new person emerge mm. through that recovery process. But it doesn't always work for everybody, just as it didn't work for me the first time mm. I tried it. And for every success, there are, there are five uh, non-successes. Mm. I don't want to say failures. It's just people who can't get recovery at that time yet. of life. Yeah, and just yet. Yeah, the yet. And um, uh, I've had a, a number of sponsees who... Uh, came into the fellowship very, very broken people. And frankly, the first time I met them, I, I wasn't sure whether I was going to be very repelled by them, some of the, the, the way that they would speak, mm. the things that they had done. You know, people in, in active alcoholism and active addiction can get up to some very terrible things. Um, and I have not encountered um, anybody yet who was not a beautiful person at their core. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the alcoholism... Create, create uh, presents this this mask of sickness mm-hmm. around them, um, which for everyone around them appear, makes the person into this awful person who should be rejected and not, and really not worthy of love the way they behave towards other people. And when the twelve step fellowship allows you to break through to that person underlying the sickness, um, it, it, everyone is is a beautiful person mm. and. Um, uh, and so some of the men that I've worked with have turned out to be, you know, wonderful fathers, wonderful husbands, wonderful children who've been restored to uh, the person that they want to be against their own expectation. <laughs> um, yeah. And so, you know, I, I can see now that recovery is a, um, it, it's a, it's a generational thing where I keep carrying the message to the people coming behind me um, and my sponsor and the people who are ahead of me you know, carry this wonderful message of recovery to me. So it's a, mm. uh, it's a beautiful program. I'm, I'm so glad I found it. Mm-hmm. Well said. Um, that's well said, Tom. Um, just listening to you there, there's a few. Uh, I, you're in that not unique, but interesting position of having both the Al-Anon and the AA experience. Um, for those of the, those of especially maybe even AA members listening, 
what's the difference for you and what are the similarities between an Al-Anon meeting and an AA meeting? Mm. So that's a great question, um, Anne. It's a great question. So, look, at, um, at AA meetings, um, uh, and depending on which AA meeting that you go to, I think there's a variety of different types of AA meetings. So you might get an identification meeting where... Um, somebody stands up and probably gives a story very similar to the one I've given today and they, they tell the story of what it was like, what happened and, and what it is now. And it is generally largely focused on um, the drinking, the consequences of the drinking and how um, the person uh, or the, how the alcoholic has been able to put the drink down, stay stopped and then find happiness. Um, for for Al-Anon, the stories that you hear are the effects of someone else's alcoholism and uh, the sickness is just the same. You know, people mm. end up as insane as the alcoholic mm-hmm. uh, dealing with the consequences of alcoholism. And um, I, uh, so the, the stories that I hear in Al-Anon are just the other half of the story of the alcoholic and uh, it's the same steps. Um, it's the same journey to try and find uh, a spiritual awakening in a spiritual way to, to live life, which is really just, uh, I think, a way of finding um, uh, a lack of self-reliance and, and finding reliance on a higher power. Um, and uh, I, I think Al-Anon, for me, provides a wider variety of tools um, that help me in my general behaviours, these things such as detachment, letting go, are probably the two ones that come to mind. Mm. Um, I don't think I've really heard as much of that stuff in AA, which is a lot more focused on um, putting down the drink, staying mm. stopped, and then you know certainly maybe a connection with a higher power. Mm-hmm. Has that answered your question? Yeah, that has answered my question. Yeah, very much. Um, we've only got about a minute left. I'm, I'm, um, this, this is my opinion, but I'm really do feel that people in Al-Anon have got their own addiction almost as uh, maybe not as physical, well, even in some cases as physically dangerous as the, as, a, as a, someone addicted to substances. And it's that addiction to other people and to, yes. and to an addiction to trying to fix relationships and manage everything. Is that your experience? Uh, yeah, and obsession with other people, obsession, and you know, often negative obsession, obsession with yeah. other person's behaviour, mm-hmm. um, and that inability to detach from them, where it becomes uh, uh, the dominant thing that you think about all the time. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, well, look, that's all we've got uh, time for today. So I'd really like to thank you very much, Tom, for coming in and sharing your experience with us today. My pleasure. Thanks, Tom. Um, to the people out there, if you're, con- if you're concerned about problem drinking in a relative or friend and would like to find out more about al family groups, then you can phone them on 1300 252 666 or go online at alanon.org.au. If you're concerned with your own drinking and would like to find out more about AA, you can give them a call on 1300 222 222 or visit their website at aa.org.au. Coming up next, we have Balanoir, The Spirit of War, hosted by Uncle Talgium Choco Edwards. Join Uncle Choco on a journey of belonging and movement through sing-alongs and yarns. Thanks for listening, 
Stay safe and stay tuned now for more Radical Radio on 3CR. And to take us out, we've got a little bit of music which we can listen to as we wait for Uncle Choco's uh, uh, show to start. Thanks, everyone. Bye. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.